Guess what Friday is? That's right, it's the 4th of July. Amazing, huh? It's going to be the 4th of July. Where is the year going? It's hard to believe. Now, I don't want to bum you out or anything, but uh, the summer is going to go just as fast. It's going to rocket on by, and then we're going to be into the fall. And when we arrive in the fall, we arrive at one of my favorite times of year, and in particular, one of my favorite holidays, that's Thanksgiving. I like Thanksgiving because we can gather the whole clan together. We just get a big old crowd at our house and we can dine together and we can rejoice and share in the abundance and provision of God in our lives throughout the year. So Thanksgiving is a, is a big one for me. I really like it. In our house, we have a tradition for Thanksgiving. That is that uh, the ladies do the cooking and the men do the dishes. Sorry, guys. Word is now out. Afterwards, the guys all gather in the kitchen and we do we deal with all those greasy pans and we have just good guy fellowship while the ladies get a chance to relax after having worked so hard to put that feast on the table. And during that uh, relaxing time for the ladies, Carol likes to build jigsaw puzzles. That's kind of her thing for Thanksgiving is to, uh, to put together a jigsaw puzzle. And as everybody knows, the secret to building a jigsaw puzzle is to find the edge pieces, right? You've got to find all the edge pieces and you get them in place and then slowly the thing begins to fit. Open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, this will be the last message in Chapter 7 of the book of Romans. If you're using a pew Bible, page 1130, page 1130, Romans 7, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through the end of the chapter this morning. And according to one commentator, interpreting this section of Romans chapter 7 is a lot like building a jigsaw puzzle. The successful interpreter will be the one who is able to fit the most pieces into the puzzle. Because this is a difficult section, perhaps the most difficult section of the book of Romans. If you begin to examine the commentaries, you don't have to look at too many before you can see that this is a battleground section in this epistle. Good commentators, good men strongly disagree as to what exactly is going on in this section. And in particular, who is the I, the first person that appears throughout this section, really beginning back in verse 7 and following through? The discussions of these things are legendary. Is Paul talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? Who is the I that he refers to? And in addition to that, the other serious point of disagreement is with regard to this I, is this person saved or unsaved is he writing from the point of view of one who has been redeemed by jesus christ or not and as you might imagine there are many iterations that fall in between let me read the text for you beginning in verse 14 for we know that the law is spiritual but i am of flesh sold into bondage to sin for that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. 
For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will free me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Let me just review with you a couple of the reasons why good interpreters understand this text to referring to either the unregenerate or the regenerate. I think just in the interest of honesty, it's important enough to do that and not just give you my point of view here, but let me give you the counter arguments so that you can weigh them yourself. The basic arguments to see this person, this I being referred to here in 14 through 25 as an unregenerate, as a non-believer, have to do with the following things. Notice in verse 14, it says that the I is sold into bondage to sin. Sold into bondage to sin. And Paul has has strongly spoken in chapter 6 that that is exactly what every believer has been released from, is bondage to sin. So that seems to indicate that the person here in verse 14 is not a believer, sold into bondage to sin. Down in verse 23, he says he's a prisoner of sin. Yet in chapter 8, verse 2, It says that the believer has been set free from the law of sin and of death. And so there's this this tension here of being a prisoner, being in bondage to sin, and the notion of you've been set free from the bondage of sin. You are no longer under it. Verse 18, the, the eye says that nothing good dwells in them. Verse 24, that they are wretched, a wretched man, trapped in a body of death. Those kinds of statements would indicate someone who does not know Jesus Christ, or at least it would seem as though. And so some very good Bible commentators come to this section and, and understand that as being a continuation of what occurred in chapters or verse 7 earlier, where it was clearly speaking of someone who was unregenerate, and they would just say the context continues to flow, and the whole rest of the chapter is about unbelievers and their struggle with the law. On the other side of the fence are the statements in here that would lead us to believe that it is talking about a regenerate person. It is talking about the struggle of a Christian. Verse 22, it it says they delight. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I delight in that law. It would seem only a regenerate person could do that. They seek to obey the law. Verses 15 really and following spoken in several places there. They serve the law, verse 25, right? My mind, I'm serving the law of God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 11, Paul is very clear. He said that no one, no unregenerate person seeks after God, right? Romans 3, verse 11, none seek after Him. So how could it be an unregenerate person and saying they're seeking after God? Or in chapter 8, verse 7, it says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So if it's an unregenerate, regenerate person, how will they possibly talk about seeking to obey the law of God, seeking to serve the law of God? Those are statements that speak of one who knows Christ, not one who doesn't. Beyond that, Paul introduces this idea of the mind serving the law of God. And throughout the Scripture of the New Testament, the uniform, at least in the Apostle Paul, the uniform statements with regard to the mind of an unbeliever is that they have no desire for God at all. They are opposed to God. They are opposed to His will. So how could they be serving Him? Yet verse 25, it says with their mind, they are serving the law of God. Finally, this I person is spoken of as having an inner man. He's spoken of being the inner man. 
That expression occurs in only two other places in the New Testament, both in Paul's usage, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Ephesians 4, uh, 3.16. The only other uses that have phrase, and there they clearly speak of one who knows Christ. So you can get a, a sense of the tension in this passage, how these strong arguments can be made in both directions. Are we talking about a believer here or are we talking about an unbeliever? The answer to that question, of course, will affect how things begin to play out for you. Neither position is without its difficulties. If it wasn't so, there would be only one opinion on this. The very fact that there is a strong difference of opinion and held by very good and capable and godly commentators tells us that this whole section is difficult and Humility would say that not that we can't understand it, but that the understanding we have of it, we should hold with a certain sense of being willing to look at the chapter again, given additional evidence or information. How do we best account? Maybe that's the way I ought to say this. How do we best account for what's going on in this chapter? How do we fit the most pieces into the puzzle? How do we get them in without having to bang on them, you know, and bend off the tabs that don't fit? As we do that, let me just sort of remind you of the overall context, though, because I think that's huge. However you land on this this morning, whether you come into this strongly with a strong opinion already, you've studied this passage, you think you know what it says, or you've read the commentary in the MacArthur Study Bible and you're absolutely persuaded of what John has said, which I'm about to contradict. So I'll just go ahead and get that out there. Okay. Don't miss the overall point. Because on the overall point, I think there's very, very strong agreement, and that is the law cannot sanctify you. The law cannot sanctify you. However we understand the details here, the big picture is still the same. The law cannot sanctify you. Let me remind you again this morning, as I reminded you last week, the context in which this chapter occurs is the context of sanctification. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 of the Epistle of the Romans is about sanctification. Chapter 7 occurs right in the middle of that context. And so we must understand the big and broad context over which rules over this. We're talking about sanctification in some form or fashion. And I think that tips us strongly towards understanding these to be the expressions of a believer, one who knows Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, the message is very clear, and that is that sanctification begins with redemption and is rooted in our union with Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, We are a new creation in Christ. But we must still continue to do battle with sin for the rest of our lives. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. You remember those statements back there? Those imperatives. The fact that we should must continue to do battle here. So just because we become united with Christ, just because we become a new creature in Christ, just because we have been redeemed doesn't mean that there's no longer a struggle with sin. It's clear. Last week I introduced, at least to some of you, perhaps for the first time, a a tension that exists called the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. The idea that certain things have already happened, but, but there are certain implications and applications of this reality that have not yet played themselves out fully. The already and the not yet. We are already positionally righteous in Christ. If you are united this morning, by faith with Jesus Christ and His righteousness is absolutely yours. You are perfect in the Beloved. You are entirely righteous positionally before God. There is nothing to be added. You are suited and fitted to enter into the presence of God positionally. You are not going to grow any more holy than you already are. Furthermore, in the already and not yet kind of tension, Paul is clear in chapter 6 that the power of sin's bondage has been broken in your life. That has already happened the moment you were united with Christ in His death, 
burial, and resurrection. So you are positionally righteous or perfect in Christ. The power of sin's slavery and bondage over you has been broken, but we have not yet been delivered from the presence of sin in our lives. The already and the not yet. There is the continuing presence of sin within us that is a fierce and formidable enemy. And it is ready to bring us back under its merciless control all the time. It is a constant fight. I am persuaded that Paul is speaking about the struggle of believers here in this section. But the question is, who are these believers? Who are these believers he's talking about? Some see his words here, verses 14 through 25, as the struggle of a mature Christian. The mature Christian who is honestly measuring themselves against God's standards of righteousness and recognizing how woefully short they fall. If you check your MacArthur study notes, that is John's understanding of this passage, and it's a good one. Others see it as a struggle of the carnal or the fleshly Christian living at a very low level of spirituality. Still others see it as a frustrated legalistic Christian who is trying in his own power to live up to God's righteous standards. So even for those who agree that he's talking about a believer here, there's not agreement about what kind of believer is he talking about. As I introduced to you last week, I have become persuaded and have concluded that the I that Paul uses here is a literary device, a literary device whereby Paul is identifying himself with his people, the nation of Israel, and he is personifying their struggles with the Mosaic law. And again, clearly in this section, chapter 7, I don't think there's any dispute at all, any serious dispute, that the law being spoken about here is the Mosaic law. It is the law of Moses. And so I think that's what Paul's doing, and I'm not going to recount the arguments that I've placed before you last time as to why I think that's true. You'll just have to get the recording and listen yourself. But I believe Paul is using this I in a literary way to to speak on behalf of his people he's in solidarity with the jewish people in verses 7 through 13 the struggle with the law that they were having was with the law prior to their redemption now here in 14 through 25 it is the struggle with the law after their salvation so paul is is Voicing the struggle of the Jews with the law of Moses. Where does it fit in? These Jewish Christians are weak in faith and are remaining under the law after redemption. They are still trying to fulfill the law. They are still trying to place themselves under the law of Moses after they have come to know Jesus Christ. And that is producing in them no end of frustration and turmoil. Crawling a little further out on the limb, I'm inclined to see in this section, verses 14 through 25, Paul's antidote to the problem of the weaker brother that he later introduces in chapter 14 in this epistle. In chapter 14, he will raise the issue of the weaker brother. That is the one who is struggling with meat offered to idols and the role of the Sabbath. When we get to chapter 14, perhaps we'll come back to this and look at it again. But I, I think it's related together here. Paul, in this section, is encouraging the weak in faith, those who are living in a state of Christian immaturity and unwilling failure, to become strong in their faith by walking in the power of the Spirit. The message of chapter 8. So, 
with that lengthy introduction, let's take a look at the text here, beginning in verse 14 through 25, and see three negative results of trying to be holy by law-keeping so that we can further understand why the law cannot sanctify you. Three negative results that come to us by trying to be holy through law-keeping. The first negative result is that trying to be holy through law-keeping produces confusion. It produces confusion. Verses 14 and 15, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. A state of confusion. As I said, verses 7-13, through 13, Paul has clearly taught us that, that it was sin, not the law, that brought about the death of the man under the law. That was the message there. The law is holy and good, verse 12, right? The law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But the law... Paul has taught us, is an instrument of sin. Its effect upon the natural man is to entice him to sin, to condemn him to death. The law becomes a beachhead, verse 11, an opportunity for sin to gain a foothold in a person's life. That's true in the life of an unbeliever, verses 7 through 13. That's true in the life of the believer as well. Understanding the law improperly creates a beachhead, creates an opportunity for sin to take advantage of in your life. And, and so Paul's going to illustrate that with the case of the Christian now. He's spoken of the non-Christian, 7 through 13. Here he's now going to illustrate the same principle by speaking about the Christian. The law is powerless to enable the Christian to overcome indwelling sin, just like it was powerless to enable the non-Christian to overcome indwelling sin. And so Paul begins in verse 14 with a for. Do you see that? For we know that the law is spiritual. That indicates to us he's continuing his basic thrust, his basic argument here. He's just bringing forward another example. Notice he says, for we know that the law is spiritual. He's He's uh, appealing here to their common knowledge about the law of Moses. It's a spiritual thing. That is, it originated with God. It reflects the character of God. It's just another way of speaking of the law as being holy and righteous and good. And in contrast to this holy, righteous, and good law lies the redeemed man, verse 14, I am a flesh sold into bondage of sin. This redeemed man is characterized by two conditions. Two conditions here in verse 14. I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. First, he is sarkanos. He is fleshly. He is carnal, Paul says. This word, fleshly or carnal, has ethical connotations to it for sure. It is speaking about more than just that he is made up of this kind of stuff, although that's true. There is an ethical connotation to it. Chapter 7, verse 5, he says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Chapter 8, verse 7, The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is this ethical connotation to flesh and it eventually producing death. But notice here in verse 14 that this individual, the man referred to here, says that he is of flesh, not in the flesh. I think that's an important distinction to note. The man is not said to be in the flesh. Verse 8, chapter 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He is spoken of as being of flesh, fleshly, carnal. Now that same description is used over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. The exact same expression. And there it describes an immature Christian. 
Remember, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he's addressing their immaturity. An immaturity that reveals itself in them being subject to jealousy and quarreling. By the way, Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, speaking about the deeds of the flesh, lists jealousy and quarreling as illustrative of the deeds of the flesh. So carnal or fleshly or immature Christians characterized by jealousy and quarreling. Maybe you can see how that might fit into chapter 14, right? And the weaker brother. I think Paul's talking here, verse 14, about the believer who does not yet know how to walk in the Spirit. That's what chapter 8 is all about. It is the immature Christian he's speaking of here in verse 14. It is Paul, again, remember, speaking, I believe, corporately, representatively of the nation of Israel who have come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they're still trying somehow to work and live under the law. Which, by the way, when you get to the book of Hebrews, that's what the whole book's about, right? Get out of the temple. Get out from under the law. And this man, this individual, this group of people that Paul is representing here, they don't know how to yet walk in the Spirit, how to live by the Spirit, and and thus they are unable to subdue their flesh which is radically opposed to God. And so they are in this state of confusion. They're confused about these things. I'm of the flesh, he says. Notice the second characteristic of verse 14. Sold into bondage to sin. Subject to the power of sin. That which is alien to his own will. Down to verse 23, he refers to it as something that has made him a prisoner. Sold into bondage to sin. What does that mean? Well, the explanation of what it means to be sold into bondage of sin, Paul gives us in verse 15, contextually. Notice it again, it begins with four. It's an explanation of what the statement he has just made. To be sold into bondage to sin to be, means to be failing to carry out on a regular basis the inner desire of the heart. That's what Paul's saying. He says that the man's wish, his wish, that is his purpose, his, his readiness, his desire is to do the divine will, but that wish is irreconcilably opposed by his actions. But that which I'm doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, what I wish to do, what I want to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. This kind of situation brings confusion brings frustration. It comes from an earnest desire to do the right thing. There is, a, there is a desire in this man's heart to do that which is right. That is to live a holy life. But the harder he tries, the harder he tries to, to control his sin by heaping on law, the more it seems to flourish. He's frustrated. He's confused. It's not working out for him. It's like a young child. One who is old enough to understand that you need to stack the blocks on top of each other to build a little deal, right? The child is old enough to understand that they have to stack the blocks. They know what they're supposed to do, but every time they try to stack them up, they fall down. It's not working out for them. They get confused. They they get frustrated. That's a negative result. The negative result of seeking sanctification through law-keeping. Second negative result, verses 16 through 23, and that is trying to be holy by law-keeping produces conflict. It produces conflict within us. Verse 16, For if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which 
indwells me. By the way, by the very fact that he is violating his best intentions, he's agreeing that the law is good. He'd have no sense of guilt if the law wasn't good and he didn't know it was good. So the conflict occurs because he knows that this is a good law. He's just not able to do it. But why? Why can't he do what he clearly desires to do? Why does he continually fail and fall short of keeping the requirement of the law? Why? Look at his conclusion. He concludes, so now and no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. His conclusion is that it is the work of sin that has taken up residence within him. Now, he's not using sin as an excuse. What he's doing is he's making an acknowledgement of the extent to which indwelling sin can control even a Christian. It is so much in control of this man that he can't even do the very things that he wants to do. It's made him his prisoner. Just like sin is, is, uses the law as a base of operations, verse 11, in the life of the unbeliever, it is now using it as a base of operations in the life of the believer here. Notice verse 17. Paul says, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me no longer indicates some kind of a change has occurred for this man. Something has happened. Now he desires to do what's right. He approves of what is holy, righteous, and good. There has been a permanent change in him. He is a new creation in Jesus Christ, but he is still unable to fulfill his best desires. The change hasn't gotten rid of his sin. It's the already and the not yet. That sin will not be gone until the day we are glorified. Until the day when Christ takes us into the presence of the Father, either through His, rap, his return and rapture of the church or through our death. Until that time, there's a struggle. An ongoing struggle. A struggle between the spirit and the flesh. Sin operating through the flesh, empowered by the law. It is a deposed master, but it's constantly seeking to return to the throne. And in the case of this individual, it has managed to gather the throne back again. Paul speaks in similar language over in Galatians 5, verses 17 and 18. He says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. There's a tension going on. Paul continues verse 18 with this conflict. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Kind of a repetition of the statement he's already said, the expression of the conflict that he's already given to us. Actually, it's repeated three times, three laments in this section. But he adds a little bit of information here in this second lament. What he says is that Indwelling sin is there and it's real. And it's driving him. It's preventing him from doing what he wants to do, but it doesn't totally inhabit him. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. It doesn't totally control him, but it is nonetheless deeply lodged within him. Sin dwells in that part of our being that Paul calls our flesh. Our flesh. Our unredeemed humanness. Our unredeemed humanness. As I've said to you, flesh is not an exclusive reference to the body. 
but it is certainly closely associated with our bodies. Verse 23, it talks about our members, right? I see a different law in the members of my body. So this, this principle of flesh, this unredeemed humanness, the not yet of the already, plays itself out in our bodies. They become instruments of sin. picture here is a Christian who despite his desire to keep the law of God, to satisfy God's requirements, he finds that he's constantly acting contrary to his very best intentions. In fact, this is so true of him that it can be summed up logically as a principle or a rule. Verse 21, I find then the principle, you see it, that evil is present in me. The one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul's saying this thing is so common, so universal. It's like a principle. It's like a rule that's driving this man's life. This intense conflict, this ultimate failure. This man who's trying to be holy by living under the law and can't make it. He may rejoice with God's law in the depth of His redeemed person, the inner man. That part of Him where in the deep of Him where Paul says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, that part that is not decaying, right? There he says, though the outer man may be decaying, the, new, the inner man is being renewed. Yeah, the body's falling apart, Paul says, but the inner man, that part of me, the the redeemed part of me that hungers and thirsts after righteousness, that part of me that loves and desires the law of God, that which wants to do what is right and be holy, that's where I love God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, the inner man, that part of you or I who know Christ, that Paul prays would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? Ephesians 3, Paul prays that you may be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. That part associated with the man's mind here, verse 23, waging war, war against the law of my mind. That part of him that desires God's law. But in spite of his godly desire, he has become captive again to the mastery of sin. He has not heeded the teaching in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 to not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. He has not heeded the teaching to stop presenting the member of their body as sin. Sin's reign and rule and slavery has been broken through union with Jesus Christ. But this man has failed to appropriate that reality. And that brings about the third negative result for this man. The third negative result of trying to be holy by law-keeping is condemnation. Condemnation. It begins with confusion, and then it's conflict, and then the conflict eventuates in condemnation. Here, self-condemnation. Verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will free me from the body of this death? The man is confused. The man is caught. He's in constant conflict. There seems to be no relief. He's he's crying out in his misery and his self-condemnation. And he's saying, who is going to deliver me from the life dominated by the power of the old age? Who? The body of this death. Interesting expression, by the way. Some commentators think it's a reference to an ancient practice of of uh, tormenting uh, murderers by binding the body of their murder victim to them so that they carried it around with them as it decayed. That would stop crime now, wouldn't it? The body of this death. If that's a true illusion, 
He's saying, wretched man that I am, who is going to set me free from this stinking, corrupted carcass of the old man that I'm dragging around with me everywhere I go? Defiling me, polluting me, subverting my best desires and intentions. Then Paul interjects here the hope. Verse 25, do you see it? It's just a foreshadowing of what's going to come in chapter 8. I mean, the, the news here is so grim. I think at this point, the Apostle Paul had to insert something. So in chapter 20, or verse 25, here at the beginning of it, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's like, he just says this so that there be some good news in the midst of all of this bad news. Deliverance is available through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will deliver us, not from these physical bodies, at least not yet, but He will deliver us from the frustration, from the death, which so dominates our bodies by granting to us the power to live the freedom of Christ, to walk by the Spirit. Chapter 8, verse 2. You see it? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's like Paul can't wait. He's got to get to chapter 8. So it gives you a little foreshadowing here. Freedom comes by walking in the Spirit. Not by continuing to pour on more law. And then as if he can't resist one more summary statement about the impotence of the law. The inability of the law to provide sanctification. Paul just sort of summarizes the whole teaching right here in verse 25 of the end. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Such is the case of the man. Such is the case of the man whose nature has been renewed by the Spirit of God. He's therefore able to acknowledge and delight in the goodness of the law to serve it with his mind. Still can't do it. In fact, as long as he is not placing himself under the full control of the Spirit, but continues to try to overcome indwelling sin by law-keeping, he will know nothing but confusion, conflict, and self-condemnation. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this to you and I? Well, let me suggest to you a, a couple of things. Let me suggest to you first that if your Christian life is characterized by confusion, conflict, and self-condemnation in your fight against sin, then perhaps, just perhaps, but perhaps you need to re-examine your relationship to law-keeping? What is it you believe about the law? Have you erroneously attempted to substitute the law for walking in the Spirit? Have you unwittingly, unknowingly, mistakenly placed yourself back under the power of the old age from which you have been delivered in Jesus Christ? Let me give you some examples of that. The seventh commandment. The seventh commandment says, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. We know through Jesus' exposition of the law that the underlying issue is sexual lust. That's the real underlying issue. So suppose you, you want to deal with this sexual lust, and so you decide to deal with it by rules. Laws. You say to yourself, no television. No television. I'm going to get rid of all televisions. I'm not going to go to the movies at all. I'm not, no movies, period. I'm not going to go to the beach. No beaches, no swimming pools, none of that. I'm going to cut out all of those things in my life. In fact, you know what? I'm going to go to the extreme, and that is that I'm going to require all women to wear burkas. So they are nothing but a faceless, shapeless, black blob. 
But still, I'm plagued with lust. I'm still plagued with lust. I'm confused. I'm in conflict. Ultimately, I'm self-condemned. Now, I'm not advocating television. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not advocating television. I'm not advocating movies. I'm not advocating the beach or the pool. I'm certainly not advocating burgers. What I'm trying to illustrate to you is that if you make it a law to give up these things, thinking that somehow by keeping this law that you will then deal with your problem of lust, you won't. All it will do is inflame it in you. The way to deal with lust and to fulfill the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit. Again, I would refer you to Galatians chapter 5. Let me give you another example. The sixth commandment. The sixth commandment. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Again, we understand the, the underlying issue is anger, right? Jesus exposits the law for us there. The issue is the anger in your heart, the murderous anger within your heart, waiting for only opportunity to reveal itself. And so the way you're going to deal with this is you're going to add on rules or laws. You're going to say, well, okay, from now on I'm going to count to ten before I speak. Somebody will say something, I'm just going to count to ten. That's... I'll just make it a, a rule in my life. I always count to ten before I respond, and that way the anger will be dealt with. Or maybe I'll just walk out of the room. That's what I'll do. I'll just make it this principle, this law in my life. I'll just walk out of the room. Anytime something is beginning to offend me, I'm going to walk out of the room. Or I know what I'll do. I'll just listen to soothing music on the radio on the way home from work. Every time, every day, when I'm on my way home from work, I'm going to play smooth jazz. And I walk in the house, it's going to be mellow, you know. It doesn't matter what happens. I got, I'm mellow. Well, but, but those are not spiritual things. So, see, what I'm going to really do is I'm going to read my Bible every day. That's what I'll do. That's my rule. I read my Bible every single day without fail. That'll do it. That'll take care of the problem of anger in my life. Till the first time I'm provoked and whew, just flashes, just flashes. Can't deal with the underlying issue by rules, by regulations, by law keeping. You deal with it by walking in the spirit. Now, am I saying don't read your Bible every day? You didn't hear me say that. There are good reasons to read your Bible every day. The most profound of which is that you love Christ. And that's the way you'll get to know Him. But if you're reading your Bible because you think it's some sort of means or mechanism by which you will control the inner man, or not the inner man rather, but the indwelling sin, then you're wrong. You're wrong. We all struggle in this area. We all struggle. The Christian life is a, a series of fits and starts, it seems. We advance, we make progress, and it seems like we slide back. When we walk in the Spirit, we, we begin to grow in, in, in the likeness of Jesus Christ, and then we're so thick-headed. We, we lapse back into immaturity. We try the law again, and we fall back. I'm persuaded that the man caught in this position here hasn't yet learned the secret of walking in the Spirit. That's why Paul's going to reveal it to him. You know how to live, how to feed the inner man, how to grow in righteousness. You already know the answer. You've already read Romans chapter 8. So I urge you, I urge you to think seriously on these things. Examine your life. How would you characterize it? Is it confusion? Is it conflict? Is it self-condemnation? If that's true, take a good long look at how you are related to law-keeping. 
to rules. Beloved, if the holy law of God given at Sinai could not do it for His people, what makes you think some rule that you might come up with, some tradition of men, could possibly accomplish what God's holy law can't do? You're here this morning and you're struggling with sin. When you're honest with yourself, you know that you can't even say, I want to do what's right. Your life is characterized not by the frustration of trying to obey the law and being unsuccessful in doing so. Your life is characterized by little or no interest at all. But maybe something that's been said this morning, maybe something you heard earlier, maybe something you've heard in here is tugging at your heart. You know that you're not right with your Creator. You know that if you were to die tonight, if you were to call you home, if you were to leave this place and, and get hit and killed in a car accident, that you know where you'd go. And you know you deserve to go there. And I plead with you, I beseech you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be saved from this wicked generation. Call out to Christ. Tell Him that you believe He died on your behalf. You understand that that crucifixion was your crucifixion. That that which came to Him He did not deserve, but you deserved it, and yet He took it for you. But you believe He rose from the dead the third day to demonstrate to all who would have eyes to see that He is indeed the very Son of God. And calling out upon Him in faith, believing His death for you, ask Him to forgive your sin and to grant you life everlasting. You can do that where you're sitting right now. Or I invite you to come over here to this lighted cross. Ron's going to come up here. We're going to sing in a minute. And that would be a great time for you to start. We've got people to meet with you, to talk with you, to explain things more fully with you. I'm not trying to jerk something out of you. You know what? If, if I twist your arm into doing something, it's not going to last. A man persuaded against his will remains of the same opinion still. You come only if God has convinced you. Let's pray.